Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from, spanning a wide variety of genres. And you can play them on just about any device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stieg Larsson. Or how about Steve Jobs, the biography by Walter Isaacson. Or what about The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. It's a terrific deal. It's available now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you. Today's guest is Eden Lepucky. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and a staff writer over at The Millions, and she is the author of uh, the novella, If You're Not Yet Like Me. It was originally published by Flatman Crooked. It's now available from Novella Press. So Eden and I are going to be talking about all kinds of stuff in just a moment. Before I get there, I want to discuss a few things here at the outset, uh, some things that are on my mind. I want to talk about humiliation, rejection, and ego. Uh, central components to any human life and especially any writing life. And uh, the reason I think I want to talk about this is that I was at the mall the other day. Uh, I was mall walking again with my daughter, uh, which if you've listened to this program for any amount of time, uh, you know, you're aware of my mall walking tendency. So I'm at the mall. It's the holiday season. I'm pushing a stroller. I've got my headphones on and I pass by Barnes and Noble and I'm reminded of this incident uh, from my past that, uh, you know, was somewhat tragic and uh, and tragic comic and i'll refer to it as the norm mcdonald incident it's kind of a funny story it's kind of a sad story and uh, i don't think i've ever told it publicly so you know but since it's the holidays i figured this might be a good time you know to relive the experience and uh you know share it with you so this was a few years ago my book had come out 
my wife and I are at the mall, uh, the same mall that I was at just the other night that triggered the memory. And so we're walking, uh, you know, in this mall and, uh, we see the Barnes and Noble and I insist on going in to kind of check on the book. And this was something that I used to do, uh, you know, neurotically back when the book came out, uh, I would go visit it. I would check in on it as if the book were in a hospital or something, you know? So I go in and, uh, I go upstairs and I'm, I'm happy to see that the book has actually been restocked. There's five fresh copies on the shelf and, uh, we're, we're sort of standing there looking at them. And, uh, I tell my wife that maybe I should sign them. Like maybe I should sign these copies. I had it in my head that, you know, like an autograph copy might get better placement in the store, might be more attractive to the consumer and so on. So I take the books over to the, to the desk and, uh, I get a pen from the customer service guy and I'm signing these books. And then behind me, I hear my wife say, well, that's my husband, you know, that's his book. And I, I turn around and look and Norm McDonald is standing there. The guy from Saturday night live, uh, you know, weekend update, the comedian, and he's with a couple of friends and, uh, they couldn't have been nicer. They were all like, Oh wow. You know, it's your book. And you know, there were congratulations or whatever. And, uh, you know, then my wife is like, you know, you should read it. And, uh, you know, she starts, she starts saying that and Norm was nice. He was like, yeah, you know, I should read it. And, you know, he's kind of a hard guy to decipher. He's really nice. He's kind of goofy, but it's not entirely easy to, to you know, figure out what's going on in his, in his head. So, uh, you know, he agrees that he should read it. And my wife says, you know, he'll sign a copy for you. And Norm, <laughs> Norm's like, yeah, you know, yeah. Like in the way that Norm talks. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, you know, signing a copy of my book, personalizing it to Norm McDonald, uh, and the whole thing. And then I'm thanking him and he's offering congratulations. And then we shake hands and I'm waving goodbye to his friends. And then, you know, we say goodbye and it ends. And my wife and I walk out of the store and I felt good about it. You know, I gotta be honest. I felt unusually good. And, uh, it's sort sort of, uh, pathetic to say, but my ego received a distinct charge from it. Uh, you know, just the, the idea that a, like a famous person, uh, some guy from Saturday night live now had my book and I had signed a copy for him. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, it can sound, uh, sort of pitiful, but it's the kind of thing that can keep a writer going for like a month, you know, or at least me back then. Uh, you know, it gave me energy or some sort of good feeling. So, uh, you know, like the next day I'm telling a few friends about it. I think I even blogged about it, you know, just, you know, briefly kind of saying like, Oh, Norm Macdonald at Barnes and Noble, he bought my book. I met, you know, so it was that kind of thing. And then it was, it was essentially over. Uh, and then fast forward like three weeks and I'm back at the mall for some reason, the same mall and I'm passing Barnes and Noble and, and I'm by myself this time. And once again, I, you know, I decide that I've got to go check on the book. You know, I've got to go into the hospital and visit the book and see how the book is doing. So I go in and I head upstairs to the fiction section and, uh, you know, there it is. There's four copies of my book left on the shelf. So like one of them had sold, which was nice. And, uh, they're sitting there and the spines are facing out. So I decide of course, to, uh, to flip one of them so that the front cover will be facing out. And this is something that, you know, something else that I always used to do every time I was in a bookstore, I would, uh, I would go in and always try to like flip a copy of my book facing out so that, uh, it would be more likely to get picked up and noticed and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, it's actually something I still do, uh, for friends books, especially if I'm in a bookstore and I see a copy of, uh, you know, or if, you know, I see my friend's book sitting there, I'll usually flip one out. So 
anyway, there I am. I'm doing this. I peel one of the books out, you know, off the shelf and uh, I'm getting ready to flip it around. And as I do this, uh, you know, I, I lose hold of it and it falls off the shelf and lands at my feet. And so I bend down to pick it up. And when I do that, it sort of falls open and I actually see my autograph on the title page. It catches my eye for a second and uh, I notice it and I open it up and I look at it and I realize that it's my inscription to Norm MacDonald. It's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the book that I signed for Norm. It says to Norm, you know, <laughs> thanks so much for reading. I'm a big fan. Uh, you know, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, picture me in this Barnes and Noble standing alone in this aisle and I'm, I'm holding my book and I'm reading this inscription and, uh, I, I can remember it. I remember like I was confused at first, like it didn't even compute, uh, right away. And then as soon as it did, I actually remember like, you know, like my body temperature changing rapidly. There was like, you know, I suddenly felt warm. I went flush. I remember, uh, I was like blushing. I was humiliated. You know, it's like my neck got hot and, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, I suddenly realized that the guy, you know, had returned the book. Yeah. He, uh, he had no interest in buying it, much less reading it. And the, uh, the entire thing was a lie. And, uh, I had been living a lie and telling and like telling people about it as if it were some kind of victory. So, uh, you know, it was just, it was a bad moment and, uh, it was just sort of, a you know, a, a, a defeat for my ego and, uh, of course, it's not over yet. So I decide uh, kind of impulsively that the thing to do now is to buy this book, like to buy it and get it out of the store so that, you know, some unsuspecting reader uh, doesn't purchase it and get a book signed to Norm. So, like, in my mind, I'm like, I need to get rid of this thing. <laughs> I need to conceal it. I need to destroy it uh, and get it out of circulation. And so I go downstairs to the uh, the cashier station and I remember stepping up to the register and opening my wallet. And I didn't have any cash, of course. And so I have to pay with a credit card. And so I give the cashier the book and I give him my card. And it's like the one cashier who actually reads like everything. He like looks at the card. He looks at the book and uh, he realizes that I'm buying my own book, which was uh, doubly painful. And I remember him, you know, kind of glancing at the card, looking at the book, looking at the card, looking at the book. And then he kind of looked at me with, uh, you know, this expression on his face that, that basically said, you poor bastard. So, uh, it was a messy kind of ugly situation. And then I, I drove home, uh, completely defeated. And I, uh, I walked in the door and told Carrie, uh, my wife about it. And, you know, <laughs> I was like, Norm, you know, he betrayed me. And, uh, I don't know if I said that, but that's how I felt. And, you know, Carrie was confused at first and then I explained it to her. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a bummer, you know, it was a bummer to think that he had thought so little of the book and so little of me, frankly, that he just, uh, pretended he was interested and then tossed it onto a shelf somewhere like it was a piece of garbage. Uh, but then of course, you know, the, the flip side of the equation is that the book was uh, essentially foisted upon him by my wife in a spontaneous exchange in a bookstore. And, uh, so from his perspective, he was, he was basically showing me mercy by pretending to be enthused. So no hard feelings, Norm. I understand. And, uh, you know, the reason I tell you this, I don't know, just because it's slightly entertaining and sort of, uh, sort of morbidly funny, but also, you know, maybe in an act of solidarity, if, uh, if you've received a rejection letter recently, or if, uh, for some reason you feel stupid and humiliated, if, uh, for example, you got really drunk at the company Christmas party and did something, uh, untoward, uh, I want you to think of me if that's the case. I want you to think of me on an abstract level 
in uh, in some sort of literary hospital in the waiting room pacing back and forth pacing back and forth and then uh, the door swings open and a surgeon steps out and he looks tired and he's kind of perspiring and he peels his mask off and he says I'm sorry Mr. Listy we did everything we could Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I'm not on Facebook right now. You're not? I take detoxes, so I'm off from September 1st to January 1st. Oh, you do? But I might go longer because I'm really enjoying it. I did go on one Friday night. My husband, he changes my password and then... He let me back on for one hour because I felt like I probably had messages and I had so many and I had to write back. They would, they were like, I'm looking for this. Can you tell me by tomorrow? Right. And I'd have to write and say, dude, check my profile. It says I'm not on. Yeah. So there's a little bit stress thinking that people are clamoring for my attention, but really they're not. <laughs> wow. And I'm very happy to be offering. That's now. discipline. But see, I, I need it for work. Yeah. I, I use it for like the nervous breakdown yeah. and stuff. I, I usually, have no choice. Yeah. I usually go off at key times when I know that I don't have something specific. Like I can't, I have to come back in January to promote my classes and my other teachers' classes. Mm. And I was on when my novella came out. Like I know when I have to be on. And there's other times where I, it's not ongoing. So. So you're disciplined. Well, I I don't I don't know my password, so I can't go on. If I could, yeah, it's sometimes like an, it's I enforced discipline. Let me just tell you: if you think I'm special or a superior to another person like right. yourself, um, <laughs> I sometimes go on my husband's Facebook when I'm meeting cereal in the morning just to see it. I like know people's like <laughs> this some makes me feel friends better. from his high school that I'm like, oh, Janet is is going to the Syracuse game tonight. I don't know who this person is, but you're, you're it just like, lets you're me like, feel like I'm part of it. You're like I used to have a wall. <laughs> And sometimes I go to my wall just hoping that somebody wrote something. Not that I could ever respond, but yeah. So there, I do that occasionally. I'm not totally above it. I gotcha. But and are you a tweeter? I'm off that too, and Tumblr until January. And is it so that you can focus on writing and teaching, or uh, yeah, mostly it's to focus on writing. And I find that if I'm, what happens is I go off, and then I go back onto all the sites, and I slowly get into it. And then at one point, I realize that I'm getting more and more into them, and I'm just spending too much of my brain space on these sites, which mm. impedes my writing. And I just don't have my imagination; just isn't as strong. And right now, my time is so limited with the baby that. I felt like, okay, if I only have this many hours in the day to do work, I just need to cut out the possibility of wasting it. Yeah. So that's how it came about. Okay. So tell me what you said. You come from a big family. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like there's some, you know, where does the creativity come from? I mean, your dad's got a creative job. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I mean, do you feel like you have like a, a somebody in your family from whom you get the the writing bug? Uh, no, <laughs> my family they a lot of them are readers. My mom's a big reader, um, and so are my siblings. Um, but we were always encouraged to do what we, whatever we wanted. I, I remember in graduate school, a lot of the people would say, "Man, my parents are really concerned about me," or they're really. And my parents were just really thrilled that I was doing what I wanted to do. That I'd always said I wanted to be a writer, and here I was at a graduate program, and I was doing it. So I felt like they recognized that I'd love to do that early on, and they always encouraged it, which I think is kind of the only thing you can do with kids. Um, That's how it was for me too. There was never, like, it was never a question. Just do what you like to do. Yeah, which is such a beautiful gift. I feel sorry for friends who were somehow forced into going to medical school or something. Or to think practically. Because, yeah. I, you know, because I, I go back and forth. Because there are times, I think, when I look at it and I'm like, this is so tough. Trying to make a living, trying to do all this. and um, But at the same time, it's like, if I were doing something else, I, I would probably be miserable. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Like, I don't, and plus, I probably wouldn't be very good at it. Yeah. I mean, clearly, you like it because you're such a self-starter in terms of the Nervous Breakdown and this podcast and your own writing. I mean... I like doing put, this stuff. I like doing what I do. You put a lot of hours into it yeah. you like it. Yeah. No, I do. I really like it. I think I benefit, too. My mom, she babysits my son twice a week, so she really sees... I actually write in my neighbor's apartment and then come back to nurse my son. And so every time I come back, I kind of talk about my writing, and then I go back to do teaching prep. So she's a lot more involved in my day-to-day work than she ever was before. So she kind of has, I think, a very clear idea, she and Patrick, my husband, probably, what happens every day. But I think even before that, it was sort of mysterious in terms of how much time I was actually writing or right. what what I was doing all this time. Yeah. My dad has no conception of how things work. Like, he thinks I'm going to be on David Letterman to talk about my novel. <laughs> he's going to sell 10,000 copies of my book to the people who owe him favors. Right. Um, he's going to give Oprah a call. I was like, Oprah's not on the air anymore. <laughs> I mean, my dad is pretty with it in general, but he just does not understand how books work. So he no. tends to think that I'm going to make a lot of money or I'm going to be this big person. Well, he used to. Maybe he's finally realized it's not going to happen. He's quiet. You, he's you, quietly come to grips. Brad, you are the David Letterman of my life. This is it. Welcome. To, what does it feel like? It's I mean, pretty exciting. You have arrived. Uh, but no, but I feel like, you know, uh, I lived at home with my parents after college uh, for a while, sort of by accident, but it was also because I didn't know where else to go. It was like one of those situations. And I was, I was really upset about it, but looking back, it was... It was an extremely productive year, like as a reader and as a writer, because I just got to sort of hang, you know, yeah. a little bit. I was I was doing freelance magazine work, and I was just real, and I was also really disciplined. I was up at like five thirty or six, wow. and I was like, you know, and I think my parents seeing that actually helped because they're like, oh, okay, he's serious he about this, it. and they could see it's it's hard. I mean, it's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around because you're not going to an office, you're not going yeah. to. You know, there's not like a structure to it that is imposed by something external. And yeah. so it can be easy for people to think, well, what are you doing all day? Yeah. You it know? took it took a while for people, I think, I mean, maybe they would say differently, but I felt like for a while my family would call me or want me to do stuff like on a Tuesday afternoon. And I would right. say, you know, I know it looks like I'm not working full time, but I'm teaching three classes and I'm writing. And so don't call me. You're Just like, pretend that I'm at an office. I'm on Facebook. Can you please leave me alone? <laughs> I'm really, I'm looking at my husband's <laughs> Facebook profile and that Janet girl is a slut. <laughs> Her vacation photos are atrocious. Uh, yeah, no, I hear you. That's like a normal thing. I feel like you sort of have to convince people that you do what you do. or yeah. you, It's like an education. It can be a little frustrating. Yeah. Although I will say it's been nice to have them or to just to have people in my life 
start to recognize that I'm doing it or that I'm, even though it's taking a long time, it seems like I, there are markers that they can say like, oh, she was published here or she does this. So I feel like they are witnessing something and they are acknowledging at times. And that makes me feel like, oh, it must be, something must be happening because they're saying stuff about it to me where they, you know, they're like, oh, I told my coworker about your novella. So that feels good. I'm like, okay, so I'm not totally invisible. Yeah. Just only half of visible now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you said that you always wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. So did you want to be a writer, like, as a little tiny girl? I don't have... Except for... I wanted to be a pop singer briefly. Uh-huh. But not really. Writing... I can't really remember any other job that I thought I would want. Like, all through elementary school, junior high, high school, I was always like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. Even before I really wrote. I mean, I would write poetry, but I never... I wasn't... You know, I always hear about these... People I went to graduate school with who wrote like whole novels. I've oh, met God. these little girls at like the Festival of Books or the UCLA Writers Conference where they've just finished their second novel. And I was never that productive. I just wanted to be a writer and I loved to read. So that was what I did and that's what it was going to be. And that was it. I'm trying it now. Yeah, you know, I, I, looking back, I, you know, I just was not that together. I mean, I, I guess I, I mean, college, I wanted to do it. And then I remember growing up, people telling me like, oh, you can write. And I remember my parents being like, you should pursue this or, you know, in, yeah. a, in a gentle way. But I was not the kid who was like hunched over his desk, like writing a novel when he was like 15. or whatever. The fantasy novel. No, I was like playing tag at a mall, you know, <laughs> like that's what literally like, what I was doing. <laughs> Why were you playing tag at the mall? Because I grew up in Indiana. We had to make up our fun. We didn't well, have. Well, I went to the Beverly Center. Yeah. So I don't like, know why I'm acting. Well, whatever. I just, like, we just didn't play tag there. I have a lot. Yeah. I guess it's wintry there. Because we were 15. We were, we were making out. It was like me and my buddies, like, punching each other and playing tag. Or, I don't Sometimes know. I'll be at the Beverly Center, and I'll look across at the Beverly Connection, and I'll think, oh, the Fridays of my youth. Every Friday night, my friend Sarah and I went to the bo- the movies at the Beverly Connection. Really? We were so dorky. So what was it like to grow up here in Los Angeles? I mean, uh, did, did it seem normal? Or it seemed you- totally normal. I had, I had no idea that it was weird until I went to college. I went to Oberlin in Ohio, and I realized that I had this crazy upbringing, that my parents were a little bit kookier, and my parents weren't professors, for one thing, but it seemed like everybody's parents were professors. Yeah. Um, that this idea of it not being beautiful most of the year, um, not you know seeing celebrities everywhere, not that my life now, day-to-day, feels like that, but there were just certain things, certain smells or certain houses, like the idea that the houses looked a certain way in L.A., was just really foreign, and I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So, but to me, it seemed really normal. And when I look back on it, I I had a pretty innocent childhood. I mean, I went to the Beverly Connection to go to the movies every Friday, so you can, yeah. So it's pretty. That's kind of. I mean, that's the, it's, it's essentially what most kids do. Just yeah. you just happen to be doing it here. Yeah, and L.A. is sort of that because of the spread out quality. I feel like it's not. It's not like New York City or something. Has it changed since you were a kid, or is it? I mean. Feel- yeah, I think in some ways when I think about, you know, when I think about Melrose, because I grew up right off Melrose, and when I was a kid, Melrose was, you know, all the squatters, all the punks everywhere, and now and it's just gone through so many incarnations, and it's there's so much more money, it feels like, there's a lot more people, hmm. um, but then I think, oh, I just have a kind of nostalgia-tinged idea of L.A., so in some ways it feels exactly the same. In other ways, it just I don't even recognize it. There was actually a video we got. Our old neighbor gave us a copy of a video that he took. It was like 1985 in the video. But he drove around the area around Melrose and Beverly, and it just looked it looked like a one-horse town compared to now. It was pretty amazing. The lack of development was really stunning, actually. Oh. 
Yeah. Doesn't feel like there's even any room. It feels like it's all built out. I can't believe they're building that condo at Third and Fairfax. It's like kitty corner to the Whole Foods. I'm like, first of all, do we need another condo? Second of all, can you fit a condo there? They'll find a way. They'll find a way. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, tell me what you were like in high school. Were you like an angsty youth or were you pretty? You seem like you're, you know, I, I can imagine you being sort of a sunny personality. I was pretty sunny personality. Um, I had the, I went to a very large public school, high school, Hamilton on Pico, uh, not Pico, on Robertson and National, if you know of it. Uh, so it was kind of high school where you could sort of be whatever you wanted to be. Nobody was really popular or not popular. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, it was such a big school and there were so many different races that really you could be popular in one race, but not popular with another. I mean, quite frankly, that's sort of how it worked. Yeah. Uh, there was a, there were a couple of people who seemed to cross all boundaries. Were you were, one of them? No. No. <laughs> I mean, I was well-liked, I think. I wasn't... I remember going to college and people being like, I was an outcast in high school, but I found my people. <laughs> I would be like, excuse me, but I was well-adjusted in high school. But I also went to a high school that didn't really ostracize people in the way that some traditional high schools do. Yeah. Um, I was really into skateboarding for a long time. Oh. And I had What kind a, of board would you have? I had a girl board. Remember that brand? It had like mm. a... The, it, on the... Back. I don't even know the right word for it. I was not that into it. I could never ollie, so I gave up. But yeah. this, the the bathroom sign for a women's bathroom, that okay. little girl in a dress, that's yeah. kind of their... That's their logo. Logo. I had a, I had a, a Powell Peralta skull and sword. Ooh, nice. Yeah, someone stole it. Out in Indiana. Yeah. In the mall. A criminal. Stop that guy. <laughs> He's going into Talbot's. <laughs> he just entered Spencer Gifts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I did. I, I, was, I was a skater for a little while. You know, I started out with an executioner, and I, I upgraded to a, a skull and sword. Wow. Yeah. I, to be honest, the only reason why I wanted to skateboard was to meet a guy. Oh. I was so into skaters. I remember I was. I could like. I love the idea of a guy with a chain wallet. And oh if really? I heard the skateboarding wheels. My <laughs> heart would go pitter patter. My dog hates. You, you just met my dog. Oh yeah, my dog too. Skateboards. Oh. Really. I think the thing with the wheels, they're very confused by it. What kind of dog do you have? A Maltese. Oh, so a small dog. Yeah. I think it's the low to the ground. Yeah. There's something about it. And not bikes. Does it like bikes? Uh, bikes are okay. It, it's just like like uh, anything with like wheels that like, you know, skateboard or, or what do you call like the little razor scooters or whatever. What about schizophrenics? Um, or, I mean, he, he's okay. you know, raving lunatics. Really. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, what I mean. <laughs> That's really what I mean. My dog, no, I mean, I think he probably would be a little skittish around a raving lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> my, my dog once started... Barking at a dwarf. Okay, and that was really embarrassing. No, did you ever see like there's the Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David had the ra- his dog was racist and you no, know it turned out that he was a homophobe, right? Oh, I think yeah, I forget. that's the twist at the end. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that because like, my uh, old dog Merlin, you know, would have issues with certain people. Like, you know, I, this is like way off point, but I remember uh, I was hiking with him one time in the woods. I was in North Carolina. This is one of the eeriest memories of my life. And we're walking through the woods, and all of a sudden, there are these two girls. And, like, one was, like, probably 10, and one was probably, like, 7. They were young. And they were, as far as I could tell, they were by themselves. And they were very strange, and they weren't talking. And they were just looking at me and at the dog, and my dog lost it. See, those are the horror movie girls. And I'm telling you, it was like that. And I mean, in the woods, in this, like, you know, and there they were was, like, probably like sister wives or something. I don't know what it was. Well, yeah, it was in like the hills of North Carolina. There was like a mist hanging in the trees. And it was like, 
No words were exchanged. Yeah. I literally just walked past them. I had to grab my dog and like pull him around. They have a sense. Yeah. They know. Maybe they were ghosts. Oh I don't know God. what was. Yeah. It was very. Merlin. Merlin. Where is he? I have a painting of him in oh my, my office. Oh, my God. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, okay. So you're a skater. Yeah. I was into skateboarding. What's funny is that my friend Sarah, who I mentioned earlier, she was into skateboarding and that's why I befriended her. We went to Beverly Connection. We never met any guys. She's gay. Later, she came out. So I could never meet guys with her. I should have known. She had yeah. those Malcolm X glasses in that middle part. Sarah, you were, you know, come on. <laughs> I had a partridge she family. She was a great skater, though. She was really good. <laughs> she, that's why I wanted to be her friend. Uh, I had a partridge family lunchbox. That was kind of my style. I had a fake fur coat. Nice. Which I brought into my college years. Oh, okay. And so I had a kind of cool style, I think, for the times. <laughs> I was going to say. You had it going on, like a fake fur coat. Yeah. And a partridge I had family. a much more kind of eccentric look then i think well yeah and i feel like and then you went to oberlin yeah which is where in ohio is that's that an, in oberlin ohio oberlin ohio so that i mean that's bleak weather in the winter yes. how did you adjust uh it was actually fine oberlin has this thing called winter term mm. and they at the time it's changed now you the, for the month of january you could stay on campus and do a project but or you could go anywhere so mostly i was home so i missed all the really bad winters okay um and it was so different so for four years, I felt like for four years I could take any weather. And I loved snow. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. So I think I remember watching the sky and being like another gray day because it's pretty gray in, in Ohio compared yeah. to Iowa. I'm even. from Indiana. I get the, it. Those gray days. Like they would sometimes weigh on my yeah. poor California soul. But for the most part, I was into it. Mm-hmm. I liked it. And you were, I mean, just normal college kid, anything crazy? Anything crazy. I don't know. Did you no. Nothing? I mean... Heavy drug use? Nothing? Not heavy. I No, I'm not much of a drug user. I was a big pothead. But, okay. I mean, a big pothead, but I got really good grades. I did my homework on Friday nights. I didn't go to the Beverly Connection anymore. I did my homework at oh, Oberlin. Oh, wow. But I had a lot of friends. I love I love Oberlin. I'm like an Oberlin... Alumni. Alumnus. I'm like a mafioso. I love it so much. I'll talk about it all the time. But, you know... I was pretty normal. I was in the hip-hop dance group. Okay. I was an English and creative writing major. Okay. I was really into narrative theory and Don DeLillo. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, oh, one crazy thing is that I took this class called Comedy and Postmodernism. Yeah. And you had to write three papers, but instead of a paper, you could choose to do a performance of some kind. Oh, boy. So my friend Ryan and I had this ongoing fake performance piece that we talked about that I would do. Um, before the class even started and it was called teen dance and it was basically I would come out dressed and then I would take off my clothes and I'd be wearing a flesh colored unitard underneath with a (laughs) seam up the front and I did this horrible spoken word and I'd crawl over the floor I'd start coughing and like hyperventilating and then at one point I'd go to the shyest person in the room and yell are you staring at my camel toe (laughs) and so (laughs) are you kidding me no and so then I actually performed this dance in my class yeah where I would say, like, teen dance. I said teen dance over and over again in all these different voices. And I, like, crawled on the teacher and said, teen dance. Oh, my God. And then God. I said, are you staring at my camel toe with this really beautiful but shy girl who looked <laughs> terrified? Um, and actually, my friend who was in my hip-hop dance group, she said, later that day, she said, what happened in class today? And I said, why? She said, Rob, who was her her friend who was in the class came up to her like right after and looked just disturbed. And he was like, what's a camel toe? <laughs> and he was just so upset by yeah. this performance that I did. So that was kind of one weird thing. So if you, if anyone 
who's listening went to Oberlin with me, who's a friend or maybe not a friend, they might remember Teen Dance. Uh, I think they would. I think that would be burned on their brain. My ex-boyfriend and my husband, we're not the same person, obviously, um, (laughs) they both, like, banned Teen Dance. Like, if you want to sleep with me, you do not want to see me see Teen Dance because it's so hideous. Like, I looked bad in that unitard then, and I was, like, 102 pounds. And I look even worse now, I'm sure. You still own it? I still own it because I feel like it might come in handy someday. Yeah. Like, what if I... We'll have to have you come to, like, a a nervous breakdown literary experience. You know, it's not a literary. Experience. Oh yes, it is. <laughs> it's so terrifying. Okay. Yeah. That's. I mean, see that that requires a level of. Uh, <laughs> What's the like? What's the opposite of shy boldness? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that anytime I had to kind of stop doing it because I mean, people would want. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it was this amazing thing, but, you know, people would be getting together, they'd be drinking, they'd be like, teen dance, teen dance, it was so weird. <laughs> but I would get so involved, I would feel really bad about myself afterwards, because it takes a level of shamelessness. You have to make yourself shamelessness. super unattractive, you have to do ridiculous things, and it's, people are laughing, but you have to make them laugh because they're uncomfortable, Yeah, and that's not easy to do. Often. And you, do you ever, do you start to feel like you're some sort of carnival show, and... Like yeah, a, you kind of feel disgusted. It's like a clown. Yeah. I can I mean people who do real performance art and take it seriously, I give them major props. I mean No, I went to a I went to some sort of art show here uh you know, it was several years ago, but it was somewhere like on Santa Monica Boulevard and it was like all, you know, paintings and it was like sort of hot and you know how these things are. Yeah. It was like <laughs> hot and crowded and there were like a lot of Cal art students and then there was a performance <laughs> artist who had like uh, rigged a noose, like a real noose to a pipe. <gasps> In the oh. ceiling, because it was, like, in some sort of, like, you know, funky warehouse lofty building, you know, with, like, exposed beams yeah. and stuff. And he had a real noose, like, tied to a pipe. And then he had, like, a stack of books. And he was barefoot, standing oh. on the stack of books, which was, like, a precarious thing. Oh, my God. He had his head through the noose. And then he had uh, his hands tied in front of him. And then he had uh, a huge wad of cash in his mouth. Oh, my God. And everyone was, like, walking past him, just, like, so fascinated. And I was like, you're going to die. Oh, my God. That's, I don't want to think about that. Yeah. So that's performance so art. that's real performance But teen, art. teen dance sounds, like, a little bit more, you know, a little yeah. bit more friendly. Like, you yeah. Know. No, it's it's fun. Well, maybe. So but, can, can you describe the dance itself? The dance... I mean, there's not much dancing. Like, I would come in, and I would, like, reveal the unitard, and I would start singing, <laughs> and I would just be like, teen dance, teen dance, and then I would sing... My boyfriend's back and he's gonna be... And then I would make a vroom, vroom sound, even though that's from... What's the other song that goes vroom, vroom? It's like I mixed together two songs by accident the first time I did it. And then I would steadily sing it louder and louder and louder. And then I would start interacting with the crowd. But I never really danced. I think I might have done some weird fake interpretive dance midway through, but it's not actually a dance. I don't even know why it's called teen dance. Yeah. That's what happens when you get stoned. That's what happens. (laughs) Don't do it, kids. It's like a public service announcement. (laughs) But that's really the extent of my, like, weird wildness. You know, otherwise. But you were doing homework on Friday nights too, so you were you were a serious student. I I I love school. You do. I mean, all through. My dad told his fiance that I lost friends when I was young because I always wanted to play school and they didn't want to play with me anymore. (laughs) You're like I'm the teacher. Yeah. Sit down. My dad once made me a handout that he made at work and made of photocopies when he was a salesman that had fractions and things and. And I was like, thank you, Dad. And it was like a fake handout that I could play with. I mean, that was my idea of fun. Wow. So I really liked school. And Oberlin was a great place, great teachers, good class size. Yeah. Just I was invigorated. You got a good education. That. I think so. And I mean, you- I went from public school in L.A. into Oberlin and I survived. Why did you pick Oberlin? 
They gave me a lot of money. Oh, they did. <laughs> and I went to visit. I didn't get it. I wanted to go to Barnard or Columbia, and they said sorry. So I went to visit NYU, which I'd gotten into, but they weren't giving me a very good aid package. And uh-huh. then Oberlin gave me a good grant, so I had to go visit, and I just fell in love. I did, How did you get the? You just signed up for I it. Just, I guess they. I don't know. They based, like you. Based on grades and also income, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think Oberlin does a pretty good job of trying to get a lot of students who maybe couldn't afford it otherwise. That's great. And so you get there and uh, you're doing your school, you get out, and then how, how soon before you go on to Iowa? Uh, two years. Okay. So I, wor- I was back in LA and I worked at Book Soup. I was a manager. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was a bookseller for a long time. Okay. I did not know that yeah. about you. I worked at Book Soup for a summer. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was going into my junior year, I was home for the summer. I worked at Book Soup. When I got out, you know, all my friends had their pantsuits. They were going to interviews. They were going to go work at, you know, Knopf in the basement or whatever. Uh-huh. And I was like, screw that. I'm just going to go back and get my old job at Book Soup. And I did. And I worked there for two years until I was ready to go to grad school. And then you submitted what to Iowa? I submitted a story. My first published story, which got published after I, after I applied to Iowa, okay. or kind of around the same time. Yeah. So that was nice. But it was called, I hate saying this out loud, it was called Wunderkind or Wonderkind. Yeah. About a mom who kisses her son at the end. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's at the very end. Yeah. I remember I showed it to Dan Sean, my teacher from Oberlin. He was like, it was before the ending, and he was like, it's kind of a letdown. We need a climax. And I was like, <laughs> here's a climax. <laughs> but it's sort of about a mom who's lost custody of her son and ends up kidnapping him, and he's only like 11, uh-huh. and he's a really nerdy kid. Yeah. And I like her as a narrator. I see sort of her strands of her and other narrators of mine. She's very kind of imperious. I like her. Yeah. So you, you just submitted that one story and I got in. I think just that one story. I might have submitted that in a shorter story. To be honest, I can't really remember. Oh, you can't? Okay. Yeah. And but the, I know that story for sure. And you got in. I got in. I wanted to go to Syracuse, actually, because George Saunders taught at Syracuse, and it's a three-year program. Uh-huh. But they didn't let me in. They didn't. <laughs> it's kind of similar. I wanted to go to Barnard. I didn't get in, so I went to Oberlin. Um, but, I so, mean, do you, the Iowa's no short shrift. No, I mean, no. I mean, I applied to... Uh, I think everyone applies to Iowa when they're doing their whole deal. Sure. And I got in. So I was deciding between that and Michigan. And I actually talked to Elaine Pollock, who teaches at Michigan, and she had gone to Iowa. And she said, I remember she said, the weather is better in Iowa. <laughs> she said, it's not as gray, because we were talking about Oberlin, actually. Uh-huh. So I was like, okay. And at that point, they were sort of, I think, in between directors at Michigan. So it was unclear what the... What was going to be next? You got to go to Iowa if you yeah, get in. What I are you know. doing? Michigan's awesome too, though. So. Yeah, but yeah, I went to Iowa. Who were some? I mean, what was that experience like? You liked it? I've talked I, to I've talked to a few people yeah, who went. Through I the feel program. like if anyone goes to graduate school and unequivocally says like it was amazing, they must be psychopathic because I think graduate school for me at least was very different from college. It's I think there's something about everybody doing the same thing, which is great. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to go and one of the things I really liked about it. But there's also a strangeness there where everybody is writing. Uh-huh. So there's sort of a, a feeling that you want to get out of that in some way. Be um, like be among different kinds yeah, of people. Yeah, be among, I don't know, engineers or something. Yeah. Um, but I wrote a lot and I met – one of the best things was that I met a bunch of other writers there that I'm still – exchanging work with now and i felt i feel and i learned how to teach there i i taught there and then when i left i started teaching so i feel like before i went i was a bookseller after i left i was a writer and a teacher so i really had a career change sure those two years which was nice that's cool and so then you left iowa and came back to los angeles Mm -hmm. okay my husband who was 
we were just boyfriend girlfriend. He didn't go to Iowa with me, but he came to Iowa City. He lived in Iowa City with me, and he had been a manager at Booksoup. The one in, we had an or- Booksoup had an Orange County location that closed. Yeah, no, I did a I did a reading at oh, that at one. South Coast Plaza. Yeah, yeah, he was the like head manager there. Okay, so he left that job to come to Iowa City to meet with me. Uh huh. Prairie Lights wouldn't hire him. Oh gosh, I don't know. They he couldn't get a job anywhere. He basically for two years was a temp answering customer service calls about the ASE mechanics exam certification exam and it paid like six dollars an hour and he was miserable so he had this terrible job so i said anywhere you want to go after this is over we can go and he chose la back to to come back here so that's how we ended up back here gotcha and now we both really like it and i don't think we're going anywhere yeah i like la i like it a lot i used to say i'll never come back here i hate it here i'm moving to new york people are san francisco yeah and now i i'm just i'm into it i've gone yeah i've gone around in my head a million different times about this place and i've just like and and just recently because i've lived here longer than i've lived anywhere in my life i've lived like the longest i'd ever lived anywhere else was eight years i've lived here for now 10 plus years And I think I finally have just decided, like, this is a pretty good place. Yeah. I think it's definitely enjoying a renaissance, too. I think as other cities seem to become less... Like, it's only getting cooler. I think for a while, L.A. was not that cool. It was just trendy, and they had the size, and lots of different people. But now I feel like it's really got the best restaurants and the best bookstores. I mean, not the best of everything, but there are all those things that I love well, about and it's any just city. It's a creative town. Yeah. Like, it truly is dominated by the creative arts. Like, yeah. that's the business, and I like that. I like that, too. And I like the arts. Yeah. I mean, I don't have yard so go los angeles go la tired of people bagging on this city yeah well just leave then god (laughs) yeah okay so uh i want to talk about your writing Mm -hmm. uh you know you have a novella out Mm -hmm. and uh i guess start there like what what was that process like so i have a novella it's called if you're not yet like me um and it's was originally published by flatman crooked and they did a thing where there was a launch where you know you had four days i participated in the launch Yes. I, I think I super launched it or something. That's amazing. Did I super launch? You might have super launched yeah. it. If you did, that is really lovely. Um, where there were like 400 copies and there were only four days that you could buy them. So we're trying to create a kind of tizzy about yeah. it. And it sold out in three days, which was really exciting. Um, and then after that, a second edition, which did not have a print run limit, became available. And that had a, a novella plus an extra story and an interview with me and a previous launch author named Alyssa Knickerbocker. Oh, well, that's um, a name. Is that a real name? It's a real name, isn't it? Oh, that my great? God, yeah. So, and that is still available. Flatman Crooked closed earlier this year, but right. Novella Press opened, which is the my editor at Flatman Crooked, Dina Drewis. She started her own company. So, okay. she's putting out my novella on e reading devices. Cool. She has, and the rest of the whatever remains of the second edition that had been printed, she has those. Oh. So, until those sell out, they're gotcha. available. So, um, I actually wrote it for them. Dina had said, if you want to be launched, you should write something. And if I like it, then we'll launch you. So I'd never really been commissioned, quote unquote, for a piece of fiction or for anything. Um, <laughs> so that was a really interesting experience. I mean, and, uh, the teen dance, you never know. That. <laughs> you never know. People, somebody might be listening to this <laughs> yeah, right. and think, David Letterman, I am here for you. <laughs> My dad's dream will come true. Um, so that was an interesting idea to to write something knowing that I automatically had an editor to read read it and sure. i actually gave it to her at a very early stage it was it was finished i believe but i knew the ending sucked and i had all these questions so she was really instrumental in making it better um and that was a great process i really enjoyed working with her yeah. and i loved the launch the launch was really fun just to feel like wow people are buying it and i could see how many copies were selling and um 
and it's nice because it's one, I mean, it's a probably a 40 page story, but published by a small book, it kind of becomes a novella, but I feel like I worked very hard on it and it's nice to see it get as much mileage as it's gotten. I mean, you know, it's not this huge book, obviously, but I feel like I randomly get strangers reading it and emailing me about it, which is always a nice thing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And I can use it as a kind of calling card. Like, oh, I have this little thing you can read and... I liked writing it. I remember when I first started working on it, I was like, oh, I'm really fascinated by this. It's narrated by a woman who's talking to her unborn child about a failed relationship. So I was just really, I just enjoyed her voice and her kind of mean streak. And so I, she is very dear to my heart. So that's that's a plus. So like real genuine effect. It sounds like real genuine affection for your characters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really care about them and I worry about them. And, yeah. <laughs> I just finished a piece of my new book that I'm working on and I came back from writing and I said to my mom, my book is so sad. Why are my books so sad? You cry? Sometimes, I mean, I haven't, I haven't like wept over my own writing since I was like 14, yeah. but sometimes I feel that. I weep over my writing, but not because <laughs> it just sucks. Just because right? I just, yeah, just yeah. it's terrible. You're like, you're so <laughs> dumb. Yeah. I do that all the time. Cry in the bath. Yeah. But. You know, I think the other day I was writing something that I just, I don't, I didn't, I came back to it today actually. And I was like, the paragraph doesn't really get at what I'm trying to do. But the idea of it was sort of shocking to me in terms of how upsetting it was. So I was pleased that I had gone somewhere like that. Well, you have to. I mean, if you're not feeling anything, then no tears for you, no tears for the reader. That's right. Right? (laughs) That's why you have to leave some surprise there for yourself. Otherwise it's just mechanical. Yeah. So tell me about the millions. The millions is a website founded by Max McGee. Okay. So stop right there. Cause like this is, yeah, this is part of my, this is part of my whole like internet life. I have like, people have asked me like, what's Max, what's C Max McGee? Okay. You want to know how, here's, here's how I think of C Max McGee. I think of, I think of the editor at the daily planet and Spider-Man cause his name's C Max McGee. I picture a guy with like chomping on a cigar. (laughs) Exactly like that. Is he? No. I want Max and I, I think his name is Christopher Maximilian McGee, which is why it's the millions. Okay. Uh, He and I worked Patrick, Max, and I worked at BookSoup together. Ah. He was the person to tell me what a blog was. Okay. And so he started The Millions when he was at BookSoup. Uh-huh. And so I feel like I got in on the ground floor. Like, if I, if I tried to be a staff writer now, they probably would turn me away. Yeah. But, so, Max himself is a jovial fellow in his early 30s. He's very has a very round face. He does. And he has an adorable son named August, who's one years old. Oh. Probably about the same age, actually. I think he's 14 months. Born in August? He's born in September. Oh. And his name is August. I know. Oh. It's a tricky one. <laughs> it's a tricky yeah. one. But The Millions is great. We, As a staff writer, I write two. I have to write two pieces a month, uh-huh. um, which is becoming difficult in this motherhood age. Yeah. Um, but I, I enjoy it. I like... And you're writing about books. I'm writing about books and writing. I don't usually do reviews. I've reviewed a couple books, but I don't think I'm good at it. Um, I like to write about, you know, books from a certain angle. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I wrote a whole long essay about books about slavery Uh that I, you know, worked really hard on, but I, I felt... It was like writing a paper in college where it was really difficult to write, but I felt like I understood... I understand why they assign papers in college because you learn something through the writing of them if you're doing them right. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I find it a place where I can figure my mind out a little bit. Sure. And, you know, that makes a – it's a nice place to, like, ask you about uh, – what was the essay called? Shutting the Door? Oh, Shutting the Drawer. Shutting the Drawer. Yeah. That's sorry. No, so that's Shutting okay. the Drawer uh, – because no, I thought this was, like – this was a really moving piece of writing. Thank you. And it got traction online. I, you know, you notice it. I got, it. like, 
so many readers for that essay. It was kind of amazing. How many? I want to say 10,000 or something or yeah. more. It was a lot. Last time I checked, it was a, I, it was sort of a gasp to me. So for our, so for my listeners, like what uh, what was the essay about? The essay was about my first novel that my agent, Erin, mm-hmm. she sent out last September. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote it this September, a year later. And it was about how my novel hadn't sold. And I think that I thought it was the best to just decide that it wasn't going to sell because there's something so heartbreaking about the weight and the rejections that started piling up. It, it is the worst it's, part. It's the worst part. And, I, and it, part of it is too that I think I've gotten a lot better at rejection. Like you can, you can tell, you can don't, not, you can deny me a short story publication, and I do not care. But the stakes get higher and higher, and soon, you know, this is my my biggest dream that I've wanted since I was a kid, and people were telling me that no, for mil- a million different reasons. And to get close a couple times. And I decided to write it because I felt like there weren't a lot of writers writing about that rejection. You often hear about writers being rejected after they sell their book. Right. This is my first two books. (laughs) Didn't sell, but now I wrote The Help or whatever it is. Um, So I felt like, you know, I've found recently that people respond to my nonfiction when I'm just really honest. And that I'm making myself vulnerable. Um, and it was pretty cathartic for me to write it, to, to not, you know, pretend that I had this great career and that everything was going well, which I think can happen a lot on the internet. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that's what I think. That's why I think it struck chord is that everybody online is presenting. Everybody is networking. I feel it. Yeah. I sense oh. it. And it's, it creates stress in me. Do you that's feel why, that? Well, that's why I have to go offline. Because yeah. I, I feel the requirement of myself to present everything that's fabulous about my life and oh, also Christ. feeling it from other people or feeling like, oh, their lives are better than mine or whatever. My I'm friend tired of that. my friend who lives in Maine, she doesn't go on the internet very much, but she sometimes looks at people's blogs and then she had to stop because she was like, I feel like they should just be called My Life is Better Than Yours. Uh-huh. And I was like, Molly, you write me emails about you know, digging up beets and then going into the ocean. I mean, your life is better than mine for sure. You should start a blog. Sounds fantastic. But just that sort of like curating of your life in that way is, is, is really fun, but it can be dangerous. So I try to counteract that by trying to be honest. And it's just, it's just, it's it's, it's also, it's disorienting because it's hard to know. And I think that's part of, you know, it's a big reason why I like doing this because I get to talk to people who are like, what's going on? And I just feel like I don't know sometimes what's going on because I'm just looking at this presentation online and it can be really subtle. Like, you know, the thing about it and you know, this goes back, it was, it was really kind of a distinct period of time. It was like 2005, 2006 writers in mass went online. Mm. Like, I think there were writers who were online, you know, prior to that, there were a lot, you know, there were several, but I mean, I just feel like the big wave. Yeah. That's about, yeah, that sounds about right. That was when social, I mean, I'm talking social media and I'm Mm -hmm. talking like people starting to really embrace the idea of blogging and interacting with readers online. And, uh, you know, it was always obvious to me anyway, that like writers are perfectly suited to this. It's what they do. They write, they present, they create fictions. (laughs) They're good with language, you know, they're more comfortable, you know, charming people in writing often than charming people in person and, you know, all this different stuff. And, um, you know, it's been taken, I think to, uh, in, in some cases or in a lot, you know, in in a big way, it's been taken to, uh, an extreme almost. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it to, I don't know what I want. You know, I don't, I don't, I know it's not going to go away and I think that it does serve a purpose and I think there's, there's positive aspects to it. Yeah. You know, it's nice to connect and I think there's more connectivity because of it than there was before. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think that I'm envious of you unplugging. 
Hey, man, you could even take a week off. I sh- I, Let I, them miss you. Yeah, That's right. the secret. Uh, I know. Yeah. I, I just don't, I don't, you know. But I mean, I also, to say, I went on, the first detox I went on, I think it was in, maybe it was 2009? Yeah. I know, it seems like that was a long time ago, but I went off for four months and then I wrote, while I was at the very end of my detox, I wrote an essay about it for the millions, which was my second most popular essay after that shutting the drawer, drawer one that I recently published. But so even though I was off the internet, I still had an access to an audience where people could comment. And I remember the day that that post went up, I kept going on to see like how many people read it and who was commenting. It was still at like, everybody look at me, I'm tap dancing. So it's not like that side of me, that side of me can be very easily be stoked. Yeah. So I'm glad. I'm doing that now, like trying to like tweet. I feel like I have to tweet about stuff and the tweeting. Fuck it. I can't deal. Tweeting is so. But I gotta. Nice. I feel like I got. I mean, you gotta. It's your only method of recourse to get the word out. I mean, if you have a book come out, yeah, you're gonna be tweeting. Oh yeah. I have. I mean, I have a Twitter account. I have like 1,200 followers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't care about. Plug me. your Twitter. What's your Twitter? Eden L. Eden L. I'm not on right now, but I get more followers when I'm doing my detox. It's like people follow me. Don't they see that I'm like? They want to be near it. They, they, they want to see. They sense the purity. They're like yeah. detox. You know, <laughs> she's real. <laughs> so, but hey, January, check out Eden L. She's gonna be talking about she's her baby. Come back strong. Teen so, dance. So, but no, shutting the drawer. I mean, because like this, this is like a big thing. Yeah. Um, you know, where you have a book that you've written that you spent all this time on. And then it goes out, and then it's the wait. The wait. Your wait, and it's you know you you sort of learn email bad news, phone call good news. Mm-hmm. The good news always comes from a phone, you know, yes. via phone. I thought of that. And then you, you know, if you see an email, you're just like, oh. When I got shit. those, I would see an email from my agent, and the subject line would be like, "Double day, cut up." Yeah. And I, I was just like, <laughs> I don't know. Can you just not email me anymore? Except just when I ask for it, because yeah. I just can't. I would be so anxious all the time. Yeah. But there's, I have to admit. Now, the book is dead in my eyes, but it's still out. To What's it called? Places. That book is called The Book of Deeds. Okay. So this, anybody listening, they, they, I get like, really angry. Um, like, I've read your novella. You're a good, I mean, I, I know how good you are. And it, it makes me crazy that you can't get, I know, I mean, I haven't read this book. I haven't read your novel. It has problems. I hey, mean, you know, but, but what doesn't? <laughs> so, of all the books getting published out there, yeah, I cannot believe that there's not a home for this thing. Well, it's it's kind of fascinating actually to see why people rejected it, and it's been heartbreaking. I mean, one editor who is an assistant editor told me wrote me that she is devastated that she wasn't able to buy my book because yeah. her bosses wouldn't I mean just the fact that she wrote that word devastated kind of made me feel better that she actually cared that much. So there were ha- it isn't that people haven't recognized that it was good or that there were things about it that were promising or whatever. It's that they couldn't get 12 other people to agree That's on it. it and I don't I don't think it was a highly commercial book to begin with. Well, when I started writing it, I thought, "Oh, this is going to be not like it's going to be big, but I thought it was commercial in some respect, but apparently I'm wrong." Do you I think what, I mean so now you're working on another book? Mm-hmm. Are you thinking consciously like how do I make this more commercial? I know. I mean, I think this one is automatically more commercial. Why? Well, the first one was problematic because it had a teenage narrator. It's a retrospective teenage narrator. But still, it's about a teenager. But it's well, not. Thought, like, but it's teenage, not, teenage narrators are hot right now, right? It's not young adult. So there was a problem there where they couldn't be a crossover. Yeah. Blah blah blah. La la la. I don't know. This one is not. There's probably another kind of marketing problem with my second book. But 
I can't oh, fucking automatic, marketing problem. Yeah, I, They'll always find I one. basically write what I want to write and I'll figure it out later because right. I just don't know how to do it otherwise. Yeah. I mean, people who say like, oh, well, I'm going to write a mystery now because I couldn't sell my domestic drama. I'm like, if you don't read mysteries and love mysteries and already just think in mystery, then I don't understand how you're going to write it. It's going to have that stink about it, I think. Mm. Writing for the marketplace, right? Just right. Yeah, so. it's, it's it's hard to do. I don't, you know, as much. It's like it's sometimes I'll have these cynical feelings where I'll be like, yeah, just try to write a paranormal teen romance. <laughs> yeah. But like, if I did that, can you imagine me writing a paranormal? It would be the worst. Book. I think you should try it. Actually, yeah. I'd read that. It would. It would like kids would just turn asexual by reading it. It would be ruined. I would ruin someone. Oh my god. But no, I I just I feel like uh, I don't know. I feel like you just have to do what you do and. I feel like some people, like I, I sometimes think about myself. I think my sensibility and the way that I write just might be uncommercial, quirky. It is what it but is. But there is some, I think there's a niche. Aren't you a best-selling author? <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's all relative. It's yeah. a Los Angeles Times bestseller. And that's another thing. People see that and they go, oh my God, he's a millionaire. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. You know, like I'm just like, people, you know, you, have to, the, you know, they, this the, place is pretty nice. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like Versailles in here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but but yeah. no, it's just, you know, it, it, uh, but I think that mm. if you, I mean, I think your quirky sensibility is what makes the people who really love your work, love your work. Yeah, I know. I mean, it has an audience. It has an audience, but it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be broad. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if there's ever going to be a a readership out there that could really, like, support me. Yeah. You know? It's just going to be, like, this weird subset of, like, 5,000 people who, like, think it's great. great. And that's great. And that's great. But, you know, it is what it is. And you have to be willing to do all the work um, for the love of the game, kind of. And I think that's kind of what I learned with the book. If it sells someday, that would be great. And if it doesn't, that's okay because I'm really excited about my new book and I'm in it and I'm just thinking about the characters and I it hasn't I haven't had to think about the marketability problems. I mean, it's kind of in the back of my mind because I'm a little bit traumatized, but it's nice just to be like, I'm still doing it. I'm still here. The worst thing that I could imagine happened to me, and I'm I still go right when I can. And there's a million stories of how this works. You know, like yeah. where you do this, yeah. you go. It just this. makes my biopic way more interesting. Exactly. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> What would, would what would they call your biopic? Oh. Teen well, Nancy. <laughs> teen I, I'm going to just keep well, doing that. Well, my husband and I, whenever we say something funny, we say, oh, that's the name of my memoir. Uh-huh. So currently my memoir is called, this is so gross, I can't believe I'm saying this. I told you I'd have this problem. This is like a summer a memoir about a summer. It's called My Swampy Vagina. <laughs> 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 because I like to talk about that in, in, in vagina in the summer. Yeah. And I think that would make an excellent memoir title. I, w- I would read that. I would at least <laughs> That pick- has marketability <laughs> I, now. Yeah, but- hey. It rolls off the tongue. Exactly. <laughs> you, I would pick that book up at the bookstore. Right? I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the biopic. Yeah, you know, (laughs) my swampy V. (laughs) Like you know, swamp, (laughs) swamplandia. That did well. Hey, now. Okay, so you're feeling okay though. I mean, like you you transitioned out of like writing, shutting the drawer was kind of a way of transitioning emotionally into the new book and saying, "Screw it, I'm putting it behind me." Because the book had been out for so long, I actually had started another book a year and a half before that. Mm. So my new book that I have, I have like 270 pages of, and I'm trying to finish it by February. Uh So it wasn't like, okay, blank page, new thing. What am I going to do? I kind of just went back to something I'm already absorbed by, which has been really helpful. Um, And I have a personality, which I think you need if you want to be a writer, any kind of artist where you're going to be rejected as you just, 
you know, they hit you and you stand up again yeah. over and over again. So I think I have that like, I'll be like, I'll get rejected from Yaddo and I'll say, fuck Yaddo. And then the next one, <laughs> I'm like, what about McDowell? I mean, I just like, I just, I'm on to the next thing because what else can I do? Yeah. I usually give myself a couple days to mope and to weep and, you know. What happens at Yaddo and McDowell? I don't know. I'm scared. Let me tell you, I went to U-Cross in Wyoming, and they don't have anything on U-Cross. U-Cross, the food is better, the views are better, and everyone's way nice. What, it's just like a retreat just for writers? writers? Yeah, you, I, at U-Cross, at least, and I think it's similar at Yaddo and McDowell, you get you get a room, and you get a separate studio, and they deliver your lunch, and then they cook you dinner. Jesus. So you have all this time to write. Wow. Really for how long? I only went to U-Cross for two weeks, but you can go, I think, for up to a month or two. Oh. It's beautiful. Wow. Like outside my window, there were deer prancing and things. What? Where in Wyoming was it? Um, or did you say Wyoming? Sheridan, outside of Sheridan, Southern Wyoming, I think. Okay. I hope that's right. I love it. Everyone should apply. Wow, but you can't I mean now that you have you're a mom. It's no, hard. No, now I can't go. You can't bring the baby. No, I don't. I mean, that Maybe. seems the antithesis of a writing colony. Is to have <laughs> but they should have there. they should have childcare on. They the, should. Yeah. yeah, I like that idea. That's actually they actually should have a, a McDowell or a Yaddo for people with kids. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Let's go into business. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I don't know. What, I mean, where did these names come from? Yado. Uh Okay. So uh, what's the new book called? The new book doesn't have a title. It does not. Actually, have- my agent read the beginning and I said, she she titled the last one, actually. <laughs> she retitled it. Um, and I was like, tell me your title. That's what I want. And she said, oh, I'm thinking about it. But she didn't <laughs> actually tell me what she was thinking of. So... It has no title yet. It has no title. But, but you're almost on. Are you pretty prolific or are you slow going? When you know, you're... I used to be very slow. And now I think I'm definitely much faster in the past six months or the last year than I've ever been. Now I'm baby, baby, baby and pregnant. I wanted to try to finish. I wanted to get a lot done before he was born. Uh-huh. So I really was on a tight schedule. And now I have three days of childcare a week. Mm-hmm. Of like 12 hours a week, basically. And so half the time I write and half the time I prepare for my classes. So I have two hours, three times a week. And I sit down and I, I unplug my modem. I go next door to the neighbor's house and I just write for two hours. And I usually get between two and three pages done. Okay. Which is a lot. For that's me. a lot. Yeah, that's good. But I'm also at the very end of the book. So I feel like I have the momentum behind me. And you know what's happening yeah. generally. I, yeah. I mean, I love sentence making so I can get really prose polishy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not the kind of person that just flies through and keeps going, going, going. So if it's at the beginning of a chapter or something, I'm usually much slower. But once I'm in it, I can go pretty fast. And then the next day I go back and rewrite, you know, yeah. basic w- stuff. What, uh, like, what, what are some, who are some writers that are big for you? Hmm, let's see. I like Tom Drury. Okay. The End of Vandalism. All right. Um, I like Alice Munro. Uh-huh. I like... I hate this question. I know. It's, me, I, I hate it's, asking I'm trying it. to imagine all my bookshelf right now, and I'm drawing a blank, of course. But I'm just like... I'm trying to get a sense. Like, do you have a, a sense of what kind of fiction you write? You know, it's always a weird question. It's like hearing your voice recorded. It, you just don't recognize it. You don't know how to judge it. But I mean, are you you, th- you you trying to write something funny? Are you like? You, is there a tradition that you feel like you're working I in? I feel like I'm working in a pretty um, strong contemporary American female literary tradition. So mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood is a huge influence. I always forget her, even though I think that she's one of my biggest influences. I'm very. I I, I think she's probably good. Not that I'm to her level, obviously, but. She, for me, has a combination of humor with beauty and sadness kind of combined. And she's interested in the lives of young women, and she kind of goes off on nutty places also. Um, 
sometimes my work can get like a lot of some of my work that's been published is pretty dirty, but I don't. Besides, like Mary Gates. What do you mean, dirty? Like there's sex in it and things. But I'm trying to think of other writers who I don't say would be a direct influence for that. Like, like graphic sex scenes. Like yeah, I mean not graphic, but there's some sex snottiness in my novella. In my novel that won't sell, there's a pretty upsetting sex scene with a 16 year old girl and a 24 year old guy that has some. It has a butt plug in it. Oh, my God. It doesn't use the word butt plug, though, because then it would be a comedy. <laughs> but I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah. So now you're like, that's why I didn't sell. Actually, what's interesting what is that... What you didn't read in shutting the drawer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but what's interesting is that none of the... I mean, maybe they were thinking this, but none of the editors who rejected it said, like, we can't take a book that has this kind of graphic stuff in it. It's unspoken. It's an, it's an <laughs> it's unwritten... Implied. It's an It's okay. an implied rule. Oh, my Lord. What was I thinking? <laughs> No, but, you know, it's actually, it's an interesting uh, topic because not all writers can write about that stuff well. Even good writers, you I, know, there I are would, really good writers who write terribly when it comes to sex. Like, I'm always like, isn't it boring when you're writing and you're like, I got to do something to make this interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. I've got to spice this up. <laughs> my new book doesn't, it has, my new book has, it's about, it's a, I'm calling it a post-apocalyptic domestic drama. So it's about a married couple at the end of the world, basically. That's, that's not really what it's about, but that's how I'm. Is it, it, is it kind of sci-fi? It's not. It's more speculative than sci-fi. There's no actual science in it, but okay. it's a it's a sort of a, a different world, future world kind of thing. But so it's there's sex, but it's married sex. Uh huh. There's a. I just wrote boring. <laughs> it's beautiful, tender sex. I just wrote a blowjob scene, okay. but it kind of start it. You know, it it's about to happen, and then the, the section ends. But uh, that's the extent to it. That's it. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of writers who... I mean, Alice Munro has that story, Wild Swans, where the woman gets fingered by a stranger on the train. I mean, nobody really talks about that when they talk about Alice Munro, but <laughs> she's got some things up her sleeve. It's all I talk about when I talk about <laughs> Alice Munro. It's my only Alice Munro. You know. uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I guess like if people can do it and they can do it well, it's important to include it because it's a huge part of human yeah, experience. But people avoid it or... I think writers feel... Unc- I think I probably... I've never done anything graphic or, you know, really explicit in my writing, I don't think. Maybe I need to get to that. Yeah, it's fun. You've turned me around. I'm going to do this. Um, So working on this book, finishing the novel, then you're going to go out with it next year? I hope so. I'm I'm trying to finish it by my birthday, which is Groundhog's Day, February Uh 2nd. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's the general deadline. I'm going to cut myself some slack depending on teething and things like that. (laughs) Um, But so... Then, you know, I'll give it to my agent and a couple of readers and see what happens. But, I mean, I'm in a hurry to get the draft done so that I can make it better because I just need to get to the end. You just I'm need to get the whole thing. thing. And see what is it that I've got. But I'm a pretty careful draft. Like, I don't write, a, like, a beast mess of a draft. You don't? You, yeah. I'm much more careful. Like, I've rewritten the first 150 pages three times, probably. So how do you work? Are you working in total silence? Do you have music on? I have, I'm listening to music on my headphones. Okay. I have a, usually a mix that I make. <laughs> like, what kind, like, are you, like, are you listening to dance music while you're writing? No, no. Well, I have some LCD sound system sometimes, or new order to, like, get going. I am in, yeah, LCD sound system is huge for me right now. It's a really, you can kind of, It's it, it gets you going. It makes you energized. Yeah. This one that I have right now, it starts out with some Lucinda Williams. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of, actually, do you know Fever Ray? No. She's one part of The Knife, I think, her band. She's like a Swedish electro Is dance. her name Fever? 
Probably. Yeah. She's so cool. Yeah. But her, she has an album that is so scary. It had, like, the first song is like, if I had a heart. And it's so scary. <laughs> and it actually really helped me start the novel because it's a scary world. Yeah. So I listen to her a lot. It's kind of dancey, but it's eerie at the same time. Uh-huh. And then I have to listen to some, like, Bon Iver or something to, to Wind really it down. emote. Or to get, yeah. <laughs> Cue the tears. Yeah, exactly. No, but it is. I mean, I feel like, like music can be helpful tonally. Exactly. When you're trying Definitely. to, like, set the tone, yeah, re-enter to, the world. Emote, so... But, I mean, usually the music is there so that I'm not paying attention mm-hmm. to the outside world. I use it to kind of get into it. And then I know it's been a good writing day when, like, six songs passed and I didn't even notice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So... What else we ta- what else should we talk about? What do you want to What do you want to tell me? Oh, I don't know. I don't have really anything to talk about. Yeah, that's it. You, I mean, you, that's it. You said everything you want to say. <laughs> that's my life story. That you basically got my life story. I'm only thirty, and I'm not that interesting. You're only thirty. Okay, yeah, wow. And so, and you have a. You I have know. A, I have some wrinkles. No, but you have a child. I mean, you know, and uh, that changes the game. Yes, it does. Like, how is that different? How are things different for you as a writer? As a writer? I mean, because I have so little time. I mean, I've always had a very structured writing life because of the amount of teaching that I do. Um, So it's not like I had all these long afternoons to write. I usually had like four hours, five days a week. That's how much I wrote. But now I have even less. um, And... There's just a lot less time. But don't you find that, like, if you're more focused because of that, that you get more done? I kind of was hoping that he would help me with that, actually. He's really focused my time. Well, yeah, and it also, you also have a child to care for. So I think it brings, like, a level of order. Yeah, and it's interesting because I thought that when he was born, I would be like, oh, this is going to make me sound terrible or something. But I thought when he was born, nothing else would matter. Like, it wouldn't matter that my novel hadn't sold or my current book was kind of languishing or whatever. But he was born and I suddenly felt even a bigger urge to work that I was watching the Rachel Zoe project today when I was breastfeeding. And he, because I wouldn't watch that shit otherwise. And she was like, you know, she said it literally. She says it over and over again. But she was talking about now their baby's born. She doesn't really care as much about her line that she's thinking always about her son. And I, of course my son is, I, I'm, he, I think about him all the time. I, I worry about him and I think about how he smells and all those things that moms do or parents do. But it really hasn't made my career drive or my aesthetic passions go away in any way. Okay. So I feel like they're just kind of working together nicely. And then I realize that writing is so important to me that I'm making an effort to do it even as my son is so little. Even even as he is starving. Starving. I'm like, <laughs> shut up, baby. I have to finish this paragraph. No. So uh, do you get anxious or edgy if you don't work on your writing? Like, Do, you, are you, do, do your moods, are your moods affected by yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. I'm not Joyce Carol Oates. Like, I don't write on the weekends. No, usually I won't write on my birthday. I'm not Stephen King who writes on Christmas. Does he write on Christmas? Yeah, and don't read that book on writing because he basically talks about how much he writes all the time and you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. But I definitely, if I have a good writing day, I'm much happier. And I, when I wasn't writing in the first you know, six weeks when I was... I actually started a story like three weeks after my son was born because I felt bereft of something. Like my life really lacked meaning. I mean, I have a pretty boring day-to-day existence. I Doesn't everybody, though? Yeah, but I don't have a Maybe car. Maybe not. Like, my husband and I share a car, so I'm usually, like, home all day. Uh-huh. Unless I can borrow it or take the bus or something. So my day is, like, a very limited space. I go up to the coffee shop. I go back home, and I go on the internet, and I read a book. I take a bath. I mean, I make dinner. So writing actually imbues all that with a wonder. And I feel like when I'm not writing, it's just 
A dimension is, a is removed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Dimension is removed. Nicely put. You must be right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I need to. I feel like I need to be more disciplined. I need to find. I have so many different. Yeah, you have a lot of projects going. I got all sorts of shit going on. Yeah. But I need to. I've, I've been better lately. Are you, you know? working on a book? Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm writing it and reading it, and I'm like, I do not know if any, you know. And I think there's going to be like two people in the world who like it or would want to read it. <laughs> the rabid fans. Yeah. <laughs> two of them. Uh, but no, it's like in an early stage or a semi early stage. Uh, I'm fleshing it out. Yeah. I'm uncertain. You know what you need is a U cross. You need a couple weeks at U cross. I do. I mean, really, that's where I started my current book. I, can't I wrote even, like 40 pages in two weeks, which was crazy. I cannot even imagine having a month in a place it's like scary, that. It's scary, isn't it? It's, I mean, when I, I went to the Vermont Studio Center midway through, like, the summer between my first and second year at Iowa, mm. and I had, a, I had like, a nervous breakdown, practically, where I was like, oh, there's so much time here to write. I don't want to write. I hate writing. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then when I got to UCross, I must have gotten better as a writer and more disciplined, and I didn't have the time that I had at Iowa, so it was such a pleasure and a privilege to have all well, the time. Well, and it's not even just the writing time. It's the reading time. And just the thinking time. Like, I remember one time I had to, I was about to write a really emotionally difficult scene so i sat outside of my office my studio with a i think i was listening to like joanna newsom or something and i was uh-huh. watching the deer and i was just thinking about how it would feel for the characters like what <laughs> bullshit but i had that that space afforded to me to just ponder which i just don't think we have very often yeah yeah now I mean, i'm putting my now on the afternoons i put my son in the stroller and I, we go on walks mm-hmm. and it's a bad stroller it's an umbrella stroller i can't really see him so I just you don't dress. have like the window on the top. No, it's a cheap stroller, but it's very small. It folds up nicely. But so I, you know, I try to peer and talk to him. But a lot of the time, I feel like we're both in our separate worlds, which I think is a is a skill that everyone needs to have is to be in one's own head. But he, I'm pushing him along, and I'm using that time to ponder. But otherwise, you don't get that very often now. No, I do. I do the stroller thing too it's in good. the evenings. Yeah, yeah. but I, I'll listen to like a podcast or a yeah. music or something, uh, just so I can't hear her cry. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> He's not. He's not kidding. Uh, well, Eden, it has been great talking it's with really you. It's really fun. I am waiting to listen to this and feel so embarrassed. No, it'll, it'll be great. And, uh, you know, for whatever it's worth, I have a good feeling not only about this new novel, but I have a good feeling about the one in the drawer, too. I just think that there are good things on the horizon. Thank you. Thank right. you. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, there you have it. That's the program. That's Eden LaPucky for the hour. Her novella, once again, is called If You're Not Yet Like Me. Go and get it. You can find her on the web, too. Her uh, website is EdenLapucky.com. Eden is spelled E-D-A-N, and LaPucky is L-E-P-U-C-K-I. So you can find her on Facebook, uh, even though she's not on Facebook, and uh, Twitter as well, even though she's on her hiatus. Her handle, again, is at Eden L. Uh, this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's got a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And uh, if you want to email me for some reason, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check them out uh, at killrockstars.com. And uh, before I go, I wanted to try something a little new, a little different. Obviously, the holidays are here. They're coming. It's Christmas. It's Hanukkah. It's all happening. And uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you, you know, you might be scrambling over these next couple of days to get some last minute gifts. So with this in mind, I thought I would call an independent bookseller to see how things are going over there uh, this holiday season and to get some information and possibly some advice. So uh, I figure I'll start locally. I'm going to call Skylight Books over in Los Feliz here in Los Angeles 
Uh, it's a great indie. If you've ever been there, a pillar of the community. And uh, you can check them out at skylightbooks.com. So let me dial them up here. Hello, Skylight Books. Steve speaking. Hey, Steve. Uh, my name is Brad Listy. I'm the host of an author interview podcast called Other People. And I was just uh, I was hoping I could talk to you for a, a couple of minutes here about uh, about books. Is that okay? That yeah, sounds good, Brad. Um, all right. So uh, what I'm doing here is I'm just trying to talk to uh, independent booksellers, and I'm trying to get a sense of, of what's happening, uh, you know, in your store. What kind of what books are selling? What uh, what you've been recommending? What you've read recently? Uh, because you know, particularly for this episode of the show uh, that I'm doing, I want to give people ideas for uh, like last minute holiday gifts. Oh, great! Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Um, well, at Skylight, um, you know. Being an independent bookseller and an independent bookstore in Los Angeles, uh, you know, we kind of cater to a customer that likes sort of unique and literary stuff. And so the stuff that's been selling here has been like the new Murakami, uh, IQ84, and the new Joan Didion book, um, Blue Nights, and uh, the newer Jeffrey Eugenides book, The Marriage Plot. Those have been doing really well for us. Um, and then things that are still doing well are like, the Jennifer Egan book, uh, Visit from the Goon Squad, and Patty Smith's Just Kids book is doing well still. Um, those things are doing well, as well as some of the like lesser-known titles like um, Patrick DeWitt's novel, The, Sister Bro- the Sisters Brothers, or uh, like Dennis Cooper's new uh, paperback novel, The Marbled Swarm. Yeah, yeah. I just, are... I just actually talked to Dennis on the show not too long ago. Oh, yeah, he was here at the store. It was great. We had a great turnout. It's always good to see him. I love it because, uh, you know, he used to live in the area. I, still, I guess he's still got a place in the area, but he spends most of his time in Paris now. But um, it's so good to see him. It was great to have him here. Cool. Well, what, what's a book? I mean, have you read anything yourself recently that's really, like, stood out to you? Uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, I mean... Just... No. Um, you know, the book that I've been pushing most uh, recently is a book. It was a guy we actually had here at the store, and uh, I would got a... a a Gallia, a promotional copy of the book early on, and I kind of fell in love with it. It's this guy named John Jeremiah Sullivan, uh-huh. and he's a, he's an essayist and, uh, and, a, and an article, you know, journalist, and um, his book's called Pulphead, and it's a collection of these articles and essays that he wrote um, over the last years. You have played for places like um, GQ and um, Paris Review and places like that, and it's a wonderful book. It's like he, he can just create um, a scenario where he goes Say in one, he goes to um, a Christian rock Woodstock kind of event, and you know it seems like very ripe for kind of a sarcastic or you know funny uh, essay. But at the same time, he he fills it full of um, this kind of emotional resonance, and he's got a way of inserting himself and even the reader in it in some way that just makes you actually laugh, but then get a good feeling from it all at the same time. Oh, cool. Interesting. It, Interesting. Yeah, he does really well with me to get a good piece on Axl Rose and a good piece on Michael Jackson, but there's also pieces in there just about um, other literary figures and artists and and even you know nat- naturalists and things like that. All right. Well, uh, that's that's great. And then before I let you go, I just want to ask you like a quick kind of oddball question because I think like you know bookstores are sort of underrated uh, social places, you know, because, uh, people always assume that it's just this quiet, solitary thing, but do you see people like, uh, you know, flirting and hooking up, uh, and meeting each other at your bookstore? Is that something you've actually witnessed before? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I, I do witness that kind of stuff. Um, people come in here. I mean, it's, it is 
one of the few places that is sort of a community center in some ways, you know, where you can come in and, and just look around, hang out, browse, and actually talk to someone who might have ideas or other interests. I do see people flirting. Um, I mean, it, it seems for, for, my, for this store, because there's so many restaurants around us, um, that a lot of people come in after having a meal, and maybe they'll be a little tipsy, and they'll come in and they'll, you know, just feel kind of like they want to just talk. Right, <laughs> they'll right. start talking to people, you know. Um, and, you know, we get all kinds of, just like maybe you'll get a little bit of a political rant, or maybe someone will just start being kind of sexy. You never know. There might be some dancing going on. That's right. Things like that. All right, yeah. folks. Well, you heard it. Uh, Skylight Books. It's at 1818 uh, North Vermont in Los Angeles. So if you... Uh, if you're a little drunk, head on over and start <laughs> chatting up a customer. <laughs> well, Steve, I appreciate it, man. It's been great talking with you. Uh, you too, Brad. Thanks so much for calling. All right. Bye-bye. All right. So there you have it. Gift ideas, new books, John Jeremiah Sullivan's Paul Pett, A Visit from the Goon Squad, Just Kids, 1Q84, and so on. That's the program. I'm out of here. Uh, enjoy your holiday shopping experience. Go to your local bookstore. Go to your local indie. Browse around. Loiter. Mingle. Be friendly. Spread some holiday cheer. Say hello to people. Uh, perhaps you'll engage in a spirited debate, or maybe you'll uh, you'll have a romantic encounter. And uh, may, or maybe you'll meet a celebrity. Who knows? And uh, maybe you'll uh, maybe you'll even sign a copy of your book for a celebrity. And uh, maybe that celebrity will shake your hand and congratulate you on your book and your success, and you'll feel really good about it. And you'll walk out of the store on cloud nine. And then maybe that celebrity will crush your beautiful dreams. <laughs>